inflation remains stubbornly high in the UK, what does this mean for local economic development in 2023? Why are we not surprised by reports of massive underspending of the UK Shared Prosperity Fund and how are we going to fix this for future rounds? And as Sheffield is confirmed as the new home of a policy campus for civil servants, should other places aim to land central government facilities as part of their growth plans? I'm Mike Spicer and you're listening to LED Confidential the podcast that tries to lift the lid on those intractable and enduring challenges facing those of us working in and on local economic development and placemaking today. And I'm David Marlowe. Join us as we explore some of the many items that captured our attention during June. But I mean, the first one we're going to start with, I mean, Mike, the ONS inflation figures for May, they were released on June the 21st. Headline annual CPI inflation remained unchanged at 8.7%, despite an expectation it would fall. The Bank of England responded predictably to the figures with a further 2-point base rate rise to 4.5%. This is the highest we've had since 2009. I think we all recognise that these rises place huge pressures on all LED and placemaking activity, from cost of service delivery and investment to the price of borrowing. But how do you think local leadership teams should manage these trends? And are there differences across places to how this impacts and what sorts of responses we should make? Well, I suppose the the first thing to say, David, is that we have been here once before it, within within the the span of, of of some people's careers. So the, the last time we saw inflation rates like this, increases in nominal wages, of course, that affect uh, wage bargaining within local government. The last time we saw something like this was around 1990. Um, that was the last time that inflation reached the sort of numbers that we're seeing today. And actually, you know, it's not just consumer prices that we need to think about. There are a whole range of price indices that describe the price pressures that local government and other economic development organisations are facing. So for, for for those of you listening who who were in the game around about that time, this might this might feel a bit, little bit before my time working in the sector, but this might there might be a bit of a deja vu about it. But I think in terms terms of uh, responses, I mean, certainly with the clients that I work with in the sector, David, it feels like you know at the moment they're exploring the same kind of set of responses that you'd expect them to. So, you know, looking at how you might rerun budget forecasts, look at reprioritizing spending across core and mandated services, exploring new opportunities for collaborative procurement. Now, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because traditionally, that's perhaps been a little bit outside of local economic development functions. But in recent years, you've seen planning departments, for example, pop up across local authorities as a shared service. So that's creeping in more and more into LED. But David, what are you seeing from your from your work and, and, the, and your clients? Well, I think there are several things. I mean, firstly, I think it's really interesting and to some extent unhelpful that, you know, as you rightly said, ONS publish a range of indices, but they actually don't comment at all on local variation. But, you know, self-evidently, you know, issues like housing costs, for example, are massively different. And, and one of the things I was interested in getting your views on was the extent to which actually LED and placemaking professionals ought to have some sense of what 
A, the relevant indices they should be tracking are, and B, whether they ought to know a local inflation rate for their area. Um, I think the things that I'm seeing are probably pretty similar to you, uh, particularly where government has awarded cash-limited funding in strict annual cycles, you know, it's really difficult to deliver the same outcomes with effectively somewhere between 5 and 15% less funding. Uh, and similarly, to the extent that you get delays and inflation is enduring, the problem is likely to get more acute rather than ease. And finally, of course, the, the costs of actually operating services and departments is under huge pressure, which is bringing its own industrial relations problems, which then actually almost get you into a vicious circle of delay, rising prices, reduced outputs and outcomes and so on. And yeah, frankly, it is really hard. I mean, you spoke about collaborative procurement. That's a real benefit of partnership working. But on the flip side, where you've reached agreement with partners in negotiations that have sometimes been actually pretty fraught and tense, to actually have to unpick those because prices outside your control have risen can also bring its own problems. So I suppose the things that I would urge is firstly for ONS actually to give some thought to how they report local variation. And secondly, for local teams to at least have a acute sense of the indexes and the prices that they're tracking and some sense of how those vary from national norms. And I, I, I get a sense, certainly within local economic development teams, there are a number of kind of locally generated measures of price pressures. And the one that, you, that I, I think I see most often are estimates of price pressures on business, on local business. So, you know, a number of surveys, including the, the quarterly economic survey that Chambers of Commerce do, give a sense of how far away from a national average they are on in terms of business and producer price pressure. So there are there are resources, free resources that LED teams can draw on. But I wonder if one of the fault lines, if we're looking at local variation, is the extent to which economic development bodies or local government are reliant upon their local tax base for their funding. So you, we know that you know some of the poorer areas of the country are much more reliant upon fiscal transfers from central government. They're much more reliant upon drawing down money from competitive funding pots than some areas are. And so you might start to see different responses based on that. Um, you know, if you're trying to manage the pressure, you're going to be looking at, you know, are there ways that you can maximize your revenue as well as cut your costs? And one of the few levers you've got is looking at things like the exemptions for business rates that you're offering out, chasing up sundry debts, although it's a bit late in the in the schedule now, you know, wh whatever kind of flexibilities you might have around council tax, which I get the sense have already been largely maxed out across the country. And where we are in the cycle, there's not much of a, an opportunity to do anything on that in the immediate term. But I think you are going to see financially a bit of a difference depending on kind of where your sources of money are coming from. Yeah. And I mean, a final word from me, I think it would be really interesting to 
have a sense of the levels of variation. And you know, wouldn't it be fascinating if it actually did become more of the mainstream place marketing collateral that you actually did differentiate the cost of of doing business. And it wasn't purely a matter of, oh, we've got this enterprise zone or we're going to have this investment zone so you pay less taxes or indeed labor differentials. But there is actually a um, you know cost of supply chain, cost of doing business and so on. But certainly, I think if listeners do want to get back to us either directly or on the, the new website, you know, with their experience of local inflation rates and the impact it's having on their operations, we'd be really pleased to hear about it. Shall we move on then to my provocation, which was the reports of massive underspending of UK shared prosperity fund and how we can fix it? And I suppose the first point that, well, I suppose the first thing to say is that there is a sense that many places have actually only achieved, you know, five, 10, 15% of the allocated spend in 2022-23, which in some ways is unsurprising because of the lateness of government announcements and then the process by which government authorized the business plans following the announcement. But in another sense, I mean, one of the first things I wanted to say about this is I do find it really worrying that our major source of the extent of this underspend actually comes from freedom of information requests from a Jack Shaw, who, yeah, well done, Jack. I don't know you, but again, if you want to get in touch, I would love to hear what motivated you to do this work and what detailed conclusions you've, you've drawn. But I mean, again, where, where are you coming from on this one? I, I feel like when we talk about funding in an LED, we, we always end up coming back to the same kind of big themes, don't we? And, and one of them is actually what kind of a role should central government play in distributing monies from the centre to local government? And I think you know, we, we have to recognise, I think, that whatever, wherever devolution goes, however far down the road we get, with fiscal devolution, there is always going to be a role for central government in providing some kind of oversight or scrutiny in the system. The question is, how should that operate in practice? And the UKS, you know, I think that you and I both, David, and many others within the sector were a little bit nervous about the idea that um, government should be a decision gate within the dispersal of UK SPF, that it actually had to, in order to draw down funds, you essentially needed to have your plan for spending them signed off. And as we know, as we've discussed many times before, the maths just don't stack up. You know, if you have 300 odd local authorities in the country producing plans, there just aren't enough civil servants in Whitehall you know, to, to turn that around quickly. You know, you have to work on the basis of trust, which doesn't seem to be there in economic development funding. And and I think, as, as we've said before, David, the answer has got to be that government sets the framework, you know, with a few basic rules. Local government economic development bodies are then allowed to spend flexibly within that framework. And then the role of central government from there is to is to uphold financial probity. 
It's to do periodic, periodic audits of the type it does in other public services, but it shouldn't be to say yes or no to that spending decision or that spending decision, which is the way that UK SPF is currently configured. So delays were absolutely, totally inevitable, totally predictable, were predicted. Th- th- those councils that managed to spend 5% of their UK SPF, well done, you, you got something out of the door. <laughs> um, some, some, some didn't, some spent barely more than 1%. Yeah, I mean you're you're absolutely right. I mean the second part of the question is uh, you know how can we alter this or how can we mitigate this in the future? And I mean I suppose the big ticket hope is that the trailblazer devolution deals with their single settlements do provide the type of regime that you've just described. But as we know, those regimes will only come in, I guess, in Greater Manchester and the West Midlands in the first instance from next year. And so we still have the issue of literally hundreds. And I think there were originally, I know you're talking about 300 local authorities, but I think by the time you deconstructed SBF into its skills components and its other components. There were over 600 programs that I think have to spend a much more significant proportion of SPF in 2023-24. And then the the largest bit, well, I don't know, that is the largest bit, isn't it? I'm trying to remember how many years we've got, but it's actually a very short-term funding program. Now, as I understand it, government has recognised and permitted rollover of the 2022-23 underspends. I mean, is there a case for them actually now to take the financial years out of what is only a three-year program anyway altogether and let the program run its course according to local time timetables? I think there's still a bit of uncertainty, isn't there, over precisely how you roll over the funds and whether that's on a generalised basis or on the basis of submitting information. I, th- I think there's still maybe a little bit of concern about There that. would have to be, wouldn't there? There, there, would, there, would, there would absolutely have to be. But I think the, the, the basic point about timeframes is really important because, of course, every type of economic development programme has a mobilisation period. There's also the challenge that at, towards the end of any programme, when those staff who are working on it know that the end of the program is nigh, of course, people start to drop off. They start to look look for other work and so on. So having a long time frame is better because it makes it easier ultimately for programs to be delivered um, operationally. And of course, you know, some EU programs were seven years long. So, you know, beyond the length of one of our parliamentary terms. And my my view on it is that I think for a nationally managed fund to go beyond a parliament would be impossible in our constitutional settlement. But we should at least aim for a full parliamentary term. Whether that will actually happen or not, I don't know. But I I wanted to mention one other thing about UKSPF, which I think it's not directly connected to this, but I think is, is an example of how much of a hash has been made of it. And that's the guidance for districts in mayoral combined authority areas. So this was one of the areas of UK SPF, the UK SPF prospectus that was really open to interpretation. So 
MCAs, Merrill Combined Authorities, are in theory the strategic body for UK SBF where they exist. They are in theory supposed to be the organisation that pulls together the investment plan to be signed off by government. They are the responsibility for making trade-offs and choices rests with them and the mayor um, in theory. In practice, it hasn't really worked like that, as as people who work with combined authorities will know. In reality, the guidance was actually quite unclear about the role of districts in the process, and an impression has been allowed to develop that essentially districts in mayoral combined authorities are the ultimate decision makers around program spend, which of course is not what the original intention was, very far from the original intention, but that has been the case. So you, you do have a number of, of of investment plans now across the country that are essentially aggregated plans of, of districts when that was not the intention. So again, you know, it comes down to how it's been managed, the the challenge of running these sorts of things centrally, the difficulties you get into because you have to provide guidance, guidance can be misinterpreted and so on. But they made an absolute pig's ear of it, didn't they? Yeah, they did. And of course, it sits alongside Leveling Up Fund, Towns Fund, Future High Street and uh, Uncle Tom Cobley and all. I mean, I, I have to hold up my hand. I mean, I, I hate the I told you so stuff, but I do remember writing when the guidance first came out and and I mean, I'm probably a bit more of a cynic than you about the motivations of our current government, but I remember specifically raising whether the district indicative allocations within the mayoral combined authority allocations was in fact a crude attempt to divide and rule and create conflict in mayoral combined authorities. Because I did think, you know, how would a mayor of one particular party, for example, reallocate for sub-regional or regional reasons an allocation from a district of another political party to, you know, to a, a another district to attempt to um, make sense of of it, and whether this was all a rather devious ploy by D Luck and their, uh, you know, whatever, but. I, I really do need to get back to my glass half full uh, posture and uh, and and move on to our final uh, provocation, which actually is a really interesting one about places for growth, civil service relocation, and the actual considerably considerably celebratory tone of the launch of the Sheffield policy campus for civil servants. I mean, where again, where do you stand on places for growth and civil service relocation, A, in general, and B, in the particular form that the current places for growth plan envisages? I think it's potentially quite important. And just, just to put this in context, so there are, um, as of today, over half a million civil servants in the UK. Uh, 510,000 is the latest figure. And they make up roughly roughly a tenth of the UK's uh, public sector headcount. So on any measure, it is a very significant body of people, you know, and where they are located matters because, you know, if nothing else, that's a lot of um, spending power, um, half a million people. So this does this does matter. I should say for, for the pedants am- amongst our, our listeners that 
the biggest departments of state by headcount are DWP and Ministry of Justice. They are by far the biggest um, departments in the country. London has the most civil servants in the country, and it has about 50% more again than the second-placed region on that measure, which is the northwest of England. And of course, that reflects the fact that London has all of the same functions anywhere else does, but of course, it has those headquarter functions for departments, and also some departments that don't really have as much of a regional presence, the Treasury, so on. Even that doesn't really tell the full story. So that tells a numerical story. But there's another aspect of this, which is, you know, civil servants come in different shapes and sizes and different grades of seniority, of course. And if you look at, by region, the share of their civil servants that are either grade six or seven or in the senior civil service, then in in London, that accounts for roughly a third of their civil servants. That's by far the highest in the country, as you'd expect it to be, as as the capital. But the average outside of London is just 11%. So it isn't just a numerical difference between London and the rest of the country. It's also one of seniority as well. So the potential economic power from distributing civil servants is obviously pretty big, because of the numbers involved, but there's also potentially an impact on decision-making as well, just given that disparity in seniority that you see. So I think, you know, as a sort of start of a ten, I think I think it potentially is quite significant, even if we can be cynical about perhaps the motives behind it. We can't deny that these are pretty big numbers, potentially, that you're playing with. I'll take your sort of overview of the sector Um, But add a couple of nuances to it. And I think we have been probably looking at the the same figures. So the actual Places for Growth programme envisages 22,000 being relocated. So it's a relatively modest number. And again, just to put this in context, I mean, I suspect the same figures that you saw will also have told you that actually in the last year for which figures are available, London numbers themselves rose by 13,000. So actually pretty much equal to the two-thirds of the uh, a number that would be relocated over three or four years, whatever the plan for a Places for Growth programme envisages. Uh, and what interested me this month about it, because it was that alongside the Sheffield launch, there was also a really quite interesting Institute for Government review of the Darlington Economic Campus, which is the much spoken about move of the Treasury and some other departments to join Department for Education colleagues to create about 1,300 civil servants in Darlington. And I think what the Institute for Government report, which was broadly favourable in the same terms as you, uh, suggests is that there are a number of issues that need to be thought about before places willy-nilly start bidding for what is still a relatively modest number of relocatees. So of the 1,300 um, civil servants in Darlington, of whom 600 are um, enhancements on the DFE campus, only 20% were relocatees from London. So actually a very small number. Now, there are lots of 
benefits of having relatively talented you know, workers moving into your area and from having that level of activity in your area. And, and I think the Institute for Government actually did feel that it was pretty good for the civil servants themselves for a whole range of reasons to get out of London and to you know, see the world from a different vantage point and to live and work in a place like Darlington. But they make it very clear that as a levelling up device, it is going to be pretty minor at best and that there are a range of issues because, A, with the sort of numbers we're talking about, how many campuses could you actually have? We already have Darlington. We've spoken about Sheffield. There's a campus in Wolverhampton. And should, in a sense, it be about three or four places with critical mass, or is it going to be distributed widely? Secondly, how does it all work in the era of hybrid working, which is a big issue? And I suppose the final point I'd make before I hand it back to you, actually two final points. I'm quite interested in, I think it was one of the select committees back in January, February, um, had Tony Travis talking about second HQs. What happens when, as he said, inevitably some of them close you know, as civil service reform proceeds? And then the final point I will make is that the department that I used to work for, the Department for International Development, has had a massive back office in East Kilbride for many decades. And I do think that the evidence of East Kilbride absolutely emphasises your point about seniority, that whether it's actually done as much for East Kilbride and Glasgow City region as a major HQ relocation of DFID would have done is highly, highly questionable. I, 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 I did read the Institute for, for Government report as well. It's, uh, I would, we, of course, we would uh, recommend it for our for our listeners um, to, to check in with. I, I suppose I, I took a, a couple of, just to add to what you said, David, there's a couple of points that I, I took away from that report. One was just the importance of senior civil servant buy-in to the whole program and how you could not take that for granted. I think those of us who've had discussions with senior civil servants in the past behind closed doors about this topic will know that uppermost often in the minds of those people charged with these programs or, or whose team might be affected by those programs are ultimately for the, the welfare of their staff. And we've seen this before with major relocation programs that they end up you know, becoming mired in HR issues in the end. You know, And we've seen a number of high-profile cases of major executive agencies like the ONS in the past, that has that has kind of suffered some of those challenges. So maintaining senior service, civil service buy-in or management buy-in is an, is not a given, and it's difficult, and it has to be done over years. And the second point is just that timeline point. I'm very very sceptical, I have to say, of the value of any sort of evaluation <laughs> this far in to a program like this. You know, if we're talking about reducing inequality, then we're talking about a generational thing. We're talking about what does it mean, you know, to have a population of highly 
skilled, highly qualified people in a place where they otherwise wouldn't be. What does that mean for the, the families they bring up, the spending power they bring? I, you know, I, I think it's pretty. It's a pretty shallow exercise doing that over a couple of years. Um, I think this is the kind of thing you've got to do over a decade or more, and then look back and, and say, "Well, okay, it did nothing," or "Okay, yes, there are all of these benefits." But I think kind of doing it and then sort of taking it at its face value or, or evaluating after a couple of years is is pretty pointless, I think. Although it is useful to, to in, in understanding what you know, potentially some of the challenges might be. Yeah, yeah I think the, the Institute for Government would not claim that theirs was a full evaluation. <laughs> it was raising questions. No, and it, and it, wasn't a, it wasn't a criticism of, of, of the IFG by any means, but I do but, think But I think that, you do yeah. raise a really good point, which is yeah. it would be really interesting to do an evaluation of the East Kilbride Department for International Development one, which has been there for decades. I think I went up there, flew up there once uh, before I went overseas in the 1980s, so... Wow, it would be uh, really interesting to, to look at that. I think that's about it. I mean, one of the things I thought about this month was there were so many topics that we could have spoken about. And again, if listeners do want to suggest topics that we should speak about from month to month, please feel free to contact us. But I'm going to leave it there. I'm David Marlowe. You can get hold of me on davidmarlow at thirdlifeeconomics.co.uk. And you can certainly get hold of both of us on the new website which is ledconfidential.co.uk, or all one word. That's ledconfidential.co.uk. Leave us a message. Uh, You can email us through the site. You can drop us some suggestions for future episodes. Tell us what you think of our episodes. You can also subscribe to the various podcast platforms directly from there uh, on the website. So do take a look. You can get bonus materials on each of the episodes, tip sheets and guides as well alongside the episode so please do that i'm mike spicer uh, you can also catch me at www.policydepartment.com and look forward to your company on the next episode